Welcome to the Part-Time Outdoors Podcast. Hosted by Matt Noss and Nate Wright. Welcome back, episode 10, Part-Time Outdoors. Today we have Jake Bush coming on. Jake has the YouTube channel Legends of the Hunt, which you've probably heard of, and he's a guy that's just been absolutely exploding in the realm of public land whitetail. Yeah, really excited. Um, big YouTube guy that I am. I ran across Jake uh, probably this time last year, actually, um, and really glad that he's going to be coming on. We're going to touch on a few different things as far as, you know, finding buck beds, some different scenarios that to play out how he would handle them. Uh, he's been successful this year. He killed uh, a Boone and Crockett this year in Ohio and also did went out to Kansas and killed a nice buck out there as well. Yeah, it was a good episode, uh, had lots of good points in it, and should definitely at least be able to learn something no matter how long you've hunted. Or Yeah, no, definitely touches on a lot of points and a lot of different things that you guys can take from it. Yep, so we'll go ahead and get into the episode. Hello. Hey, Jake, what's going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. How you doing? Oh, not too bad. Uh, got Nate here, and then I got Matt as well, my co-host. Awesome. Hey, how you doing, Jake? Good. How you doing? Good. I'm doing great, man. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, Nate kind of turned me on to you. Uh, I've been watching your stuff, and I'm, I'm really impressed. And I'll just go ahead and say Nate has a big man crush on you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've, uh, like I said, I've been listening to you, some of your stuff, and you seem like a pretty, pretty credible, pretty knowledgeable guy. There, there is one thing though uh, that's thrown a red flag to me. And uh, I'm going to hit you with this just starting out. So you were on a podcast talking about how you were scouting, which is kind of what we're we're trying to get into here to really dig in, in into your scouting. But you said on your scouting trips, you like to stop and get ice cream with your... And I don't think you've been eating very many ice creams. I mean, I've been looking at you. look pretty jacked. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, hey man, that's that's my cheat meal, <laughs> no I mean, doubt about it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, but I think he's eating some protein ice cream or something. Oh, that's good. Oh no, yeah, I, I uh, always tell the story about killing my biggest buck before. I was driving down there and it was ninety five degrees that day, and I was already in my hunting clothes because you know I play the wind and all that. But so I stop at the Dollar General halfway there and grab a couple ice cream bars and I'm eating them on the way. And I've got ice cream all over me when I kill that deer. <laughs> That's probably, that probably is what's attracting them. The ice cream, you got some Rocky road. They come right to it. Oh yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's the secret. But uh, no man. Yeah. Glad for you to come on. Uh, I was actually, some of these questions we have today, I was watching your uh, IG story on you. Were, it looks like you were doing a lot of scouting today and you found some nice beds and so forth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I put in just over 10 miles boots on the ground today. Nice, nice. But uh, we'll go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you know, I've listened to you on a few podcasts, but, you know, for our listeners and stuff, you know, just tell us a little about yourself as far as, like, what you're about, maybe where you work, where you come from, you know, where you reside and everything. Yep. So my name's Jake Bush. I, uh... I'd like to, I'd like to consider myself just a regular guy, just like probably everybody listening to this show. Um, you know, I'm crazy about bow hunting. That's my biggest passion in life. And I've made a lot of decisions that have really kind of circled my life around that. Uh, June of 2019, I actually moved to Ohio. You know, I, I was in New York and I just quit my job, sold my house, moved down here to Ohio to chase big public land bucks. And 
I've been doing that ever since. Um, you know, my roots are pretty similar to probably a, a lot of your stories as far as I grew up hunting with my dad and my grandpa and my siblings. And, you know, it started out with small game and then I got into deer hunting. I killed my first deer, uh, pretty young and it's just, it's been an addiction ever since I've, I've, you know, I remember growing up through, through high school, there'd be like parties and stuff and people would be going to parties and I would be out in alfalfa fields with a camera. My grandpa's little Sony Handycam, just trying to film deer. That's you know, awesome. it's just, it's something I've always just loved doing. And I, I've never felt the need to really be around a lot of people. You know, I like being solitary kind of and doing my thing. And, uh, yeah, now I have a little boy and I'm, I'm looking forward to him coming up through the ranks and, Hopefully he loves hunting as much as I do, man. That'd be awesome. But, uh, as far as work goes, um, I work in a factory, so I work a 12 hour shift and I was on nights for a long time. I'm on day shift now, but I've always been some sort of factory worker since, since I got out of the service and I've really just, you know, picked a job that gave me more time off to do what I did today to go scouting on a Monday and then tomorrow on a Tuesday when nobody else is in the woods. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story. Okay. What, what wrecked your body worse, the night shift or the service? The night shift, hands down. <laughs> it was, it was tough, man. And you know, I've, I've been blessed over the last few years before this new job where I was on at least second and it didn't really affect my deer hunting too much, but night shift put a damper on it big time. You know, it was, I, I found myself scouting a little bit less than I wanted to and making a couple mistakes mentally and stuff. And I'm glad to be back on day shift now. No yeah. doubt about that. I've I've worked several years and nights and I it, you feel like a zombie the next day. So I I know how that is. Yeah, I was gonna already say like both of us actually work shift work. Like I work a seven on seven off schedule to where I have seven days off completely. To you like you said, be in there on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday when no one's in the woods. Vice versa with Matt, he works twenty four hour shifts. He's a uh, flight nurse. So uh, he works, you know, doing things like that. So he has a lot of days off in the middle of the week and so forth like that. So we do try to utilize those weekdays to hunt more like fighting the crowds on the weekends. Oh, yeah. Yep. No doubt about that. That helps out big time. So but uh, we'll go ahead and jump right in it. If you don't mind, uh, we have quite a few questions for you. Um, some of them you've hit on before might be a little bit more detailed. Um, some of it might seem a little bit more repetitive, but I just kind of want to get the more detailed of things, I guess I would say. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Um, so, you know, from start, like when you're trying to find buck beds, I feel like this is one thing that, you know, a lot of people struggle with as far, fi as, far as finding buck beds. Like, um, you know, do you do like a grid search? Um, you just kind of, how are you deciding where you think the beds are, I guess I would say? So it's situational and that's kind of how I always start every single question I get because, you know, this whole thing is so situational on uh region of the country terrain you know topography all these different factors um as far as finding buck beds goes generally in hill country it's not a grid search i'm i'm really picking out the leeward side of hills and i don't know if you guys want me to go as far as as far in as like what's a leeward side versus a windward side do you want me to do that i know what a leeward is and a windward side but you can you can go ahead and explain it to where you know if someone doesn't understand it Yep. Perfect. So the leeward side of the ridge is going to be the side of the ridge that the wind is basically blowing. You know, if it's coming up over the top of the ridge and blowing to the east, well, that eastern side of that ridge will be the leeward side. Absolutely. So, you know, deer like to bed with the wind at their back and preferably some sort of sight advantage. 
So I find that in hill country, most of the bucks that I'm targeting are on the leeward side. And that's not to say they're not on the windward side. It's just I find more mature bucks on the leeward side. So that's what I target now. You know, I fine-tuned my approach over the years where I, I very rarely do I hunt a windward side of a ridge, and there's got to be a very specific reason for it. So generally in Ohio, we have a predominant southwest wind. So anywhere from west to south is, is normal here. Um, so what I find myself doing a lot is I find myself scouting north ridges and east ridges because that's the way the wind is pushing. And I find, you know, quite a bit of success doing that. Um, as far as the actual beds go, like if I, I, I start on my maps and if you're in hill country, the biggest thing that you have to your advantage is a topography map. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have four or five different apps. I use Google maps. I use all sorts of different things. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm picking out these leeward side of the ridges on any sort of point or even a bowl. I like both of those quite a bit. And then if there's a point, if there's a sub point coming off of that, that faces the right direction, I'll look at that too. So I'll pick out, you know, I'll pick out an area that let's say like this year, I've, I picked out a state forest that's going to have roughly 10 different ridge systems that I need to check. So that means, you know, let's say two scouting trips per one, that's 20 trips. Okay. So in, in all of those ridge systems combined, I might have, you know, 200 to 300 and maybe even more than that points of ridges and bowls and sub ridges picked out on my maps. And then I'll draw a route of like the most efficient route for me to go scout that area. And I'll go put boots on the ground and check every single one of them. Now, wow. a lot of these, a lot of these are very specific beds. You know, if it's, if it's very monotonous timber or if it's monotonous clear cuts, the beds are in very obvious spots. They'll be like right over the point of the ridge or they'll be in the bowl. Um, any sort of, like I said, sub ridge or any logging road that's brushy will normally hold the beds. Generally, these are in the upper third of the ridge as well. So up higher. Yeah. Um, but where, where you run into some issues that are a little bit different is when you get into, let's say you're in a hardwood forest, you know, deciduous forest with a bunch of oak trees and you have like, random clear cuts just kind of spaced out all over the place on these ridge sides. Yeah. That throws the bedding for a bit, little bit of a loop because even if that clear cut doesn't set up exactly on the point of that ridge, if the ridge is wide open and the clear cut is, you know, back a hundred yards on that ridge system, but it's still leeward, they'll find a way to bed in that clear cut. Very rarely will they go out and bed in that wide open timber on that point, unless that's all they have. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I definitely do. Cause some of those hard edges that you don't see them setting up out there on those, you know, the different edge points, I guess I would say, like you said, I see what you're saying when they get set up back in there. Yes. Does that make now sense? They, yeah. And they, so they do still prefer the points if it's the same type of timber, you know, if there's no thick areas, okay. if it's all open, they will still bet on those points and they'll still bet in the bowls. But like today I was in a, in a spot where I was on the point of a ridge okay. that faced to the North. And the clear cut was on the eastern side of that, but the point didn't have any clear cut on it. It was it was wide open. So when I get into you know I, I can I can identify that there's a clear cut there that I need to scout for beds. I can identify that, but the difference with the clear cuts that are like randomly spaced is I grid search them for the sole purpose of you don't know exactly where that buck's going to be on that ridge. Yeah. And you that's, know, it, and honestly, I feel like a lot of, you know, I use Onyx a lot, but 
I've been utilizing Google uh, Earth a lot more because of the certain times that you see when they took the picture. So it's more distinct timber, I guess I would say. So I'm kind of getting a little bit more using both of them and then kind of picking my spots. Yes. And Google Earth is such a overlooked tool mm -hmm. and you know, it's free. You can download it on your phone for free. We're paying for all of these hunting apps. Google <laughs> Earth is free. Yep. So the thing about Google Earth that separates it from everything else, in my opinion, is like, yeah, topography maps nice. The way that you lay down points on like your Spartan Forge or whatever other app you're using is great. You know, your tracker is great. All that's great. But if you identify a good spot, what I do, any what I do, so I'll identify the spot on my map. I'll scout it on my map, and then I'll open up Google Earth and I'll put it in 3D mode. And I'll tilt it as far as it'll tilt so I can actually see the curvature of the hills. So it's like uh, it's like a 3D layout right in front of you. Yep. It's like you're looking right at it. Yep. It is. It, and it, it's so precise anymore. Like, it's it's such a good tool. And, I mean, I can find, like, little divots. I can find fallen trees on a hillside that's set up, like, on the leeward side. And I'm like, okay, there's going to be a bed on that root wad on the other side of it. Then I'll go there and, bam, bed. You know, like... It helps out so much, it's unbelievable. It's honestly scary how, how accurate it is, honestly. There's another app. It's called, I believe it's called like Hunt Scout, I think. Um, I use it mostly for bird hunting, but I've I've noticed, I think I'm going to use it more next year for, for deer hunting. What it does is it'll give you all of the cuts in your state, when it was cut, how old it is, and then it'll also delineate what types of trees are where so you can kind of see that when you're looking at like satellite imagery and stuff like that on on the google and on x and all that but this will actually you can click on it and it'll say like a mix of uh oaks or or whatnot honestly pines would be nice yeah. to find mm -hmm. and stuff like that so i that's one thing that i started using but that's not free so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i gotcha oh yeah and there's so many of them i mean the the options are endless anymore and they all help quite a bit. You like that uh, Spartan Forge app? I used that for the first time this year. Is it? I think it came out this year, didn't it? Yeah, it came out this year, and yeah, I do like it so far. And it's what I really like more than anything is that they have a lot of technology that's still going to come out. So they're going to have the ability to uh, basically purchase custom maps, and they're going to have even better imagery. So it's it's still got a long way to go, and that's going to be exciting to kind of see that progress. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so we'll lead into my next question. So let's just say, okay, for instance, today, you know, you on your story, you, you found a nice buck bed, you know, you feel confident in it. And so where do you go from there? Are you setting a cam over the bed? You setting a cam, you know, with like a something leading into the bed, maybe off of a pinch, something like that. Where are you going once you find the bed? So in the cut that I was in today, I found roughly 20 buck beds inside that cut. Wow. But I was I was really excited about these ones just because of the way they set up. And there was actually a cluster of three of them that set up the same way. So if you can imagine, I mean, like some of these southern Ohio hills are really steep. And this clear cut's on a really steep hill. I mean, I don't know the exact grade, but you basically have to grab the saplings in front of you to pull yourself up the hill the whole way. Oh, wow. So there's old root wads that were, you know, 100 years ago or whatever, trees had fallen down. And then you have like that little flat spot on the side of the steep cliff. And so I was walking up and down that grid search in that whole area. And I kept finding those root wads and they had beds on them. Well, I get to this one spot and it's like 80 yards from the transition line of the white oaks up top. 
Okay. And there's a bunch of big scrapes leading to this area. There's a bunch of, I mean, thigh size rubs about chest high, just huge rubs leading to this little bedding cluster. And sure enough on those root wads, I mean, there was barely a leaf in any of those full of hair, full of big tracks, full of droppings. So that basically tells me, Hey, the, uh, there is a mature buck that's spending a lot of time here mm-hmm. on a Southwest wind, a South wind, a South wind or a West wind, any of the predominant winds that I'm getting. And I could see, you know, when it's really steep, you can see their tracks of where they're do what they're doing when he's exiting, when he's entering, I can see all of that. So I, when I find the bed, I try to figure out how he's going to navigate the terrain real time. And you know, like the stem count inside that cuts really high. So if he's got a big rack on his head, he's not going to want to walk through certain areas. You know, he's going to want to either get to the spine of that Ridge, or he's going to want to drop down to the Creek. And he's doing both of those. He does both of those things on a regular basis, according to his tracks and according to the rubs and the tine marks on the saplings, leaving his bed. You know, I can, I can almost see just tine marks on saplings leaving his bed to go down into that bottom. So what I do is I, I, I scout the beds really hard and I'll lay in the beds. I'll figure out exactly what they can see. You know, I'll try to figure out what they can hear when there's leaves on, when there's not leaves on. I'm trying to put all this together in my head mm-hmm. and where's their food source? You know, where's their destination food source? Is it a white Oak flat up top? Is it some of the green brows down in the bottom? And how's he going to navigate the terrain to get to that point? And generally what I do is I don't run any cameras inside of like a clear cut. I'll run them on the transitions of that. So I'm trying to find the trail that he uses the most frequent to get to his destination food source for the night. Okay. So So, you broke it down. So you saw two trails that he was using and then basically you looked at both of them and you were like, okay, where is his main food source going between the two? Correct. Which, yeah, each, each trail leads to a different food source. Okay. And the one way he's got to, he's got to traverse about 300 yards of Creek bottom to get down into the main drainage, which is where the browse is. And the other way, he's only got to come up that ridge between 60 and 80 yards to hit the white oaks. And it's a very hard transition between the clear cuts and the white oak flat. And so that's where I'll probably target him more, more likely than not. But my plan is to run a camera on both trails on the transition line on their scrapes on each one of them. And so that's, that's my plan with that buck. And you know, that plan changes a little bit. A lot of times what I'm looking for is a hub system where I'll have like four or five different ridges that face a different direction and they'll have a hub scrape in the bottom. And then I'll run my cameras down in those hub scrapes to try to get inventory. But the name of the game for me is find the bed, figure out how he's going to navigate to his destination food source. Does he have a secondary food source on the way, or is he just going to hightail it to that destination and then figure out how to cut him off with a wind that still sets up for him to bed there and have the advantage and just pick the tree that sets up to where I can beat him by, you know, maybe even 10 feet of wind direction. I don't know if it's because you're getting more, more popular and you're talking about it more and more, but I feel like that was one of your best explanations as far as breaking it down and how to identify where the buck, how it, what type of bed it is, whether it's doe bed, buck bed, and then where you go from there. That was, that was really good. And then, uh, as far as, 
whenever you do identify the buck bed, you said you were looking at tracks. Are you kind of eliminating um, the smaller bucks? Like, are you looking for like four four finger wide tracks? Are you looking for three finger wide tracks? Like, what's your system there? If you if you see a smaller track, are you just kind of disregarding that and going to the next bed? So that's kind of a touchy a touchy point. It it really depends on the area. If it's a high density deer area, those small tracks don't really deter me because that buck's going to bed in a different location for a different wind direction every day. But that's not to say that a more immature buck isn't going to bed in that same bed that he frequents because he doesn't know to play the wind yet. You know what I mean? He hasn't had those experiences. So I try not to let the tracks leading to and from the bed dictate too much unless it's very close to season. If I'm in there in September and I'm scouting last minute because something happened and I couldn't get the intel I needed, then that that carries a lot more weight for me. What really matters to me is the location of the bed. You know, if like how I told you, I found at least 20 beds in that clear cut. I only found two clusters of beds out of those 20 that set up for the most mature buck. And one of them was on the tip of the ridge. And then one of them was weight like back probably three or 400 yards. And that's the one that I was just talking about was that cluster of three beds, but all the ones in between that didn't set up right. They just didn't have the right things for a mature buck very often. Anyways, you know, a mature buck generally likes to have the bed with the best advantage. Mm -hmm. And so over time you kind of, you know, you pick these apart and you run cameras over bedding areas and you figure out, which beds mature bucks frequent more often. And that kind of gives you like uh like spidey senses towards what you think they would need in the area that you're in. But generally speaking, I mean, if you're finding beds on the point of a ridge, there's a very good chance if it's a point of a ridge in big hill country and it has any like undergrowth cover at all, there's a really good chance that that's the most mature buck. I've, I've played off that for a long time and that's, you know, that's done me pretty good. Okay. No, I like that. Honestly, and like you said, you've over time you're going to learn what's the best situation. And I like how you said I laid down the bed. I see what he's seeing. You know, why is he here? You're kind of breaking it down why. You know what I mean? So that's like you said that's going to break it down what's the difference between a mature buck and not a mature buck. Yeah, and the other thing with laying in that bed too, uh you know, first off, so I had a guy ask me today actually. He's like, "Hey, do you care about the scent in those beds that you're leaving?" To me, I don't care at all. You know, I'm scouting in December, January, February, March, April. Even when I scout later into the summer, the intel I gain from being in the bed is well worth the scent I'm leaving behind. I've never seen a correlation to deterring a buck doing that, to be honest with you. Now, maybe if it's, you know, real time, don't go lay in his bed the day before you want to kill him out of that bed. I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't make a, a habit of that, but, but generally speaking... I don't think that scent matters a whole lot. So the the purpose of laying in the bed too, like the, the number one purpose is I'm really trying to get as close as I can to these deer during season. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell everybody I get deemed like a bed hunter, right? Because I scout beds a lot, but I'm an opportunist. You know, if I have a Boone and Crockett buck coming out to a, a public bean field every day, I'm going to go kill him on the edge of the bean field. But that doesn't happen very often. If I have a buck coming to a giant white oak flat every day, I'm going to hunt him over the giant white oak flat, but that doesn't happen very often. 
So I find myself pushing back further and further and further just to get to the point where these deer are still frequenting in daylight. If that makes sense, you know, I don't want to be out of the game. So I'm, I'm not necessarily, I'm sure I'm a bed hunter because I know where it's at and I've laid in it and I've scouted it, but I'm just trying to get as, I'm trying to get to where that deer's at in daylight. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care if it's over the bed or over a field. It doesn't matter to me. It just so happens that I, I have the intel needed that if I need to go hunt over his bed, I can do that because I didn't leave any gaps in my scouting. And that was just a matter of putting enough time in basically. So when I'm laying in these beds, what I'm looking for beyond what he can see, what he can hear all that is how close can I get to this bed in order to kill this deer? You know, I'll, I generally try to get within, let's say 80 yards of a buck bed when I'm setting up. Can I get within 80 yards of this bed? You know, if it's in a spot and I get in there and it's wide open timber and he beds on the point and he's going down the hill to a white oak flat on the other side, I might not be able to get within 300 yards of that deer. And I probably won't hunt that deer because there's a good chance he won't make it to where I can set up in daylight. And if I get any closer to him, he's going to bust off the ridge. So all of that is, is a factor, you know, like I could lay in a, a great buck bed and say, I can't hunt this spot. You know, it would, it would, I, it would be almost impossible for me to kill this deer. But I also get into a lot of areas where I'm like, you know what, if I'm laying right here, this is without leaves on, you know, this is without all the cover, which is my advantage that helps me, but I can come up this Creek. I can peek my head over top of this knoll and set up in a, in a tree six feet off the ground. And he's going to come down off his bed another 60 yards and then try to jump this Creek to go to that white Oak flat on the other side. And I'm ready to kill him at five yards. You know, like those are, those are the things I'm trying to make sure that I can do. I'm trying to make sure. And it's nice to have all the beds marked in an area too, because say that there's 20 beds and I have to figure out how to navigate through that area without bumping a ton of deer, or possibly bumping him. Now I've got them all marked already. So I can say, okay, you know, I know that I can circle around here and there's no beds here. If anything, maybe a doe group moved in, but that doesn't matter to me. There's no way I'm going to bump a mature buck until I get to this point And then I have to be careful. Yep. Uh, and, and honestly, that's one thing that with your video this year in Ohio, you know, you, you were like, well, I bumped that buck going in and you were like, well, that's not the buck I was after. You knew that you, and you knew where you were going and you probably had an idea that he might, the, the smaller buck might've been there in that bed heading into your one spot that you were going to hunt. That's yeah. Yep. Perfect example. You know what I'm talking about? Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the whole backstory on that, you know, I'd scouted that whole hub system and I, that was actually the bed that the buck I was after was using on a west wind, but we had a northeast wind that day. So he was better on the other side of that hub. So going in there, I knew, you know, there's a 5% chance that that buck doesn't care about wind today for some reason. And he still beds in that bed and I bump him, but that's probably not going to happen. What's probably going to happen is one of the subordinate bucks in the area is going to be in his bed. And there's a good chance that I bump that deer and I just want to try to soft bump it. So I'm going to come up over top through the briars. So it never catches my wind and all it can do is hear me. And that's exactly what happened. And I heard that deer bound off and then go down in the bottom. And I was like, well, it was probably a buck. It was a lone deer early season. And normally does aren't, aren't alone early season mm-hmm. and they're not betting in those type of situations. And, uh, 
I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to press on, you know, I'm going to continue my game plan and try to go kill this deer coming off the bed on the other side. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing is like, I play all this out in my head, right? Like I've, I feel like I got it all figured out every single time, but realistically it's probably a, I would say probably 10% of the time it actually works or, or everything you call actually plays out. You know what? So it's, it's, it's not like I can ever get to the point where I can call my shots every single time like that. But every time I go in the woods, I do that. It's just a lot of times I'm wrong, but when it plays out, obviously it, it works. If I can get a buck, a nice buck, one out of every 10 times, I'll take that all day. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where I'm at too. That's, that's exactly what my thought process is. <laughs> I mean, I'm at the point one of every maybe 40 times. <laughs> but that's the thing. And, and you, and you're that confident. That's how tough mature deer are. And like you said, if you're saying 10%, that's, that's a high percentage for a mature, de- mature deer. Um, so my question kind of leads into this, my next question. So if you had to say how many trips days does it take for you to say, that this buck is going to be on this wind on this day. Like I said, I know you don't know. You can't pick your shots. I get that, you know. But, like, when you feel confident enough, exactly, you're like, okay, I got a northeast wind. He's going to be sitting here. Like, how much time and trips and days is it? do you think, on average, does it take for you to, hone, you know, hone in on a deer, I guess I would say, a mature buck? So, in the last I, – I, I thought about this the other day, and I had it played out. In the last 11 years – I've killed my target buck eight times in the last 11 years in the first week of season. I love it. And you know, this year I killed, so I've been in Ohio for three years. Uh, three years ago, it took me two hunts to kill that 186. Last year I messed up on my first hunt and my fourth hunt of the year on a Boone and Crockett typical. And I, I should have killed him. My mind wasn't in the game. That's 100% on me. And then this year I killed another, uh, gross spooner day one. So, so this works, you know, it's just a matter of how much work you can put into it. Absolutely. And I, I, I correct me if I'm right. I heard you on a podcast. Correct you're, me if I'm right. But, yeah, I'm wrong. Sorry. <laughs> if you did about over 500 miles of scouting last year. Wow. Oh yeah. Easily. I, that's what I have logged. And okay. there was a lot of trips where my phone would die or other stuff, but yeah, I did 500. Um, and it, it, it goes by pretty quick, you know, like today was over 10 miles and I, I didn't feel like I really did that much to be honest with you. So if you put in the days, the miles come pretty quick and you'll really locate a ton of beds. You'll, you'll have the ton of Intel. You'll have a ton of good community scrapes and you should be able to put, uh, put that all together. And, you know, public land hunting specifically, I feel like the, the, Effort to reward is like, it's complete. It, it, they run parallel. Like no matter how much effort you put in, if you put in more, you're going to have more success. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Like I've never worked really hard and worked harder and harder and then not had some sort of success. You know, if, if you go out five times a year to scout, that might be a little bit different. It might be hard to hone in on them, but if you continue to use your days off and use a couple hours here and there and, continue to e-scout, you're going to eventually have success. From billion-dollar ad budgets and arena naming rights to tens of thousands of retail locations, big wireless providers spend big to appear like they're your only option. 
How do they afford it all? (laughs) That big bill you get at the end of every month. Mint Mobile had a different idea. Instead of brick and mortar overhead, Mint Mobile is online only. What does that mean for you? A whole lot of savings because wireless plans from Mint Mobile start at just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just $15 a month. You'll save enough that you can get a brand new rod and reel for the upcoming season. For anyone who just hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan, and you can even keep your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. By going online only and eliminating traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Talking about the the mileage and, and tracking yourself, how many miles you're walking, things. One thing that uh, I was talking to someone the other day about is he said every time I go in the woods I put my tracker on for him it's not to track how far he walks this was an interesting point that he made he said there's been so many issues lately with trespassing and landowners trying to sue people and and things like that he said that way when if I ever get questioned by DNR or anything like that I just pull up my track boom here's where I am time stamped everything so I thought that was interesting too. I don't know if you use one X or or what you use to track your mileage, but that's just an interesting thought he had. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not tracking for mileage wise. I just happen to tally it, but I really like, I'm not trying to like hit a certain value. I'm just trying to spend as much time in the woods as I can on my free days. Yeah. But what I, what I mainly use it for is I'll do a couple different things. I'll I'll actually walk deer trails while I'm out in the woods. Like today, I was walking all the deer trails through those cuts to where they hit the transition line. I was walking deer trails around the front of ridges to where they come up over a ridge for an oak flat. I I like to do that because now I have that on my phone. You know what I mean? So I can like I can start to I can get home and open up my map and put it together and it looks like a spider web basically. Well, I can find hubs within that spider web where the most trails converge within the best amount of bedding. And so and generally what I find is if I find like that hub of trails with a bunch of good bedding, there'll be a really good scrape there or there'll be like some a big rub there. And so that's another place to put a camera to get inventory. But yeah, I use it for the same thing. I mean, I've had a couple occurrences where um, I've had to share certain things with game wardens for certain reasons, and I always have my tracks. I always have my exact track of what was going on. You know, I I find myself on some of the public, like really hugging. I mean, not not close, but within let's say a hundred yards of the private a lot. And I I even like to hunt the edges quite a bit because that's where I just tend to find the most overlooked spots. I feel like a lot of guys don't want to get too close. They'd rather hunt the middle of a 20,000 acre piece of public because they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So some of the best hunting is on the edges and on the skirts or another thing I use to my advantage is 
if you have a piece of public that circles around a piece of private and you can't access, I like to come in and then, you know, work my way back towards the private and get like almost butted up against, like if they have ag fields, I can get butted up against where the transition is between the public and the private and have those deer filter to me off the public, you know, if they're bedded on the public land. And so I do that quite a bit. And it, yeah, it's just nice to have your tracker going. It's a, it's a way to show people, you know, if you have any sort of, uh, interaction with a landowner he's like hey you were on my land like hey this is my track right yeah. like you know i i have this here like look at man i was good i was good by 100 yards i wasn't even close and you know the the nice thing about ohio too is that a lot of the property lines are painted with like like yellow normally yellow? i find a lot of yellow i was gonna say i ran <laughs> i ran into it the other day when i was talking to you i ran into a lot of yellow and i was like okay all right and i looked on my my onyx and i was like okay i dipped back the other way <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that seems to help a lot too, but it's just, I, I mean, I'm always using as many resources as I can. I'll even, if the access is a little bit sketchy, as far as like, you know, it'll be like a easement in between private properties and it might not be very wide at all. Maybe even like 50 feet wide. I'll always call the game warden, the local game warden. They probably all know me, but know me by name. They're like, Jake quit calling us, but <laughs> I'm constantly calling them for that too. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll call in for like, even like if I find bait on public, which happens all the time, mm. I, I actually had a guy, I had a hub scrape with a camera on it and I always elevate my cameras way up. And this guy was scouting he was doing the right things, but he came into that area and he put mineral down in the scrape and I had it all on camera. <laughs> oh my well, gosh. on one of my YouTube videos, somebody knew the spot I was in and they started talking. They were like, Oh, you were, you killed that deer in that Ridge system that has a big mineral lick in it. And I was like, by the way, I don't go in there anymore because I had to turn this guy in for baiting here. And I'm not going to go hunt over that spot. But thanks for your concern. I appreciate <laughs> it. Isn't that crazy? Like someone recognized something like that off a of YouTube video. Oh it God. is. Yeah. I'm yeah, glad you but, turned him in, though. I'm getting so fed up with people baiting. It's it's just not fair. Yeah. No. And it, it, my biggest concern beyond them cheating because it is cheating if you ask me and like a lot of them i'll find i'll find a ladder stand that's not supposed to be on public after season with a four-wheeler trail leading to it with a corn pile and corn bags left on the ground the trash all over the place like come and on it's like you're you're breaking so many laws <laughs> there but the the biggest issue that i have is killing let's say i'm after a booner right and let's say i kill a booner not knowingly within a hundred yards of somebody's corn pile. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well now, yeah, now I have it on video and now it gets, you know, a game warden gets a hold of it and he's like, Hey, you killed this deer. It got turned in that you were hunting over bait. Well, I didn't know there was a corn pile there. I had no, like, how, how am I supposed to know what's in the area? Yep. You know what I mean? So that's my biggest fear and my biggest worry with it is, is being inadvertently charged with some sort of, violation when it wasn't me that's my biggest fear absolutely now, i've heard you say um a few things about four-wheelers and on another podcast you, you've said one of the four-wheelers messed up one of your scouts and stuff are you allowed to have four-wheelers on public land in ohio so it depends on the public the majority of public any wildlife area or state land or state forest uh I, not any i'm not gonna say any because there's exceptions but the majority of them you cannot the the exception to that is any Wayne national. So uh, Wayne national, but, and this is the thing too, they have designated trails on Wayne national, but people are driving everywhere. Every Ridge has a trail on it. So 
Jeez. you know, you're, you, you can't outwork guys on four wheelers. You just can't. And I'm sure there's still big deer running around some of those areas, but, and, and some guys use it to their advantage. I'm sure there's guys that can get up on top of these ridges and hunt a saddle during the rut and they do really good. And that's awesome. As long as they're on the designated trails, like that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you guys are having success, but I just find that I don't do good around four wheelers. Like I, I, I have less success and less mature bucks around four wheelers. Yeah. I mean, they're how smart they are. They know, they, they know. And like you said, the rut that's, that's on them. That's, that's the only way you're not playing their game as far as when they're in the rut. So exactly, but no, so that's, that's one of my, actually, that was my next question. How much time are you spending just avoiding people? So because I know how public land is. I know Matt knows the situation, you know, I, and I I'm sure you do that in my everyday too. life. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so during, during hunting season, I'm not concerned with people at all. And especially the first week or two weeks of season when I'm out chasing my buck around. Um, and by, I'm, by the way, the reason, I love the early season. I do. I love the, the aspect of it and that they're, I feel like they're more predictable in a sense. They are. And the thing about early season that I talked about earlier is however much you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. So if you scout all year round for one day, there's a very good chance that that one day you're going to have success or very, very close after that. Um, but so, so I'm really looking for people and hunter sign and all of that during my scouting. And I've, I've learned how to avoid people to where, you know, I can pick a spot out on the map now and there's a good chance nobody's in there. And it, it might be because of topography because I have to go up and down three ridges to the back corner of the public, or it might be because you have to cross a river access or because it's really weird access next access next to like a not so great area somewhere. But I've just found ways to, to make it to where there's not people around me through my scouting. So I don't have to worry about it during season. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's, you're, it's you're going to happens when you're hunting public, you're going to run into people, but I think access from what I've learned, um, my buddy that does, we do some public land hunting in Indiana actually, but I just purchased a, uh, alpaca, alpaca rack, uh, raft. Um, so I'm going to try to use it to utilize on forest rivers and streams and so forth like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. Water access is one of my favorite things. Um, even something as simple as just wading across like a waist deep Creek. Yeah. That deters 90% of people. So we're going to transition a little bit here. Um, also saw your Kansas buck. Congratulations on that as well. Um, so why Kansas? Why, why all of a sudden did you want to go to Kansas this year? So I've really wanted to get into travel hunting more. Uh, I've talked about it on a couple podcasts that I'm a terrible rut hunter because I, I never really have a tag during the rut. And so it's you know, not I, a bad I, problem to have nice, nice brag there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but on the flip side, I always tell everybody like, I want to be a better rut hunter because I'm terrible during the rut. So I make it a point now to try to find a state to go to, uh, two years ago, I went to New York and that's a little bit tough up there. Um, but I decided Kansas, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to go to a draw state and I'm, I'm putting in points for Iowa too. Iowa's on the list, but I was like, I just want to go hunt a different type of terrain. You know, I feel really comfortable. I probably feel the most confident in marshes, like cattail marshes. I'm very confident there. I feel pretty confident in hill country, 
But what I haven't done is a lot of wide open, like grass country, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to go see if I can put it together and just kind of evolve as a better hunter and learn and hunt hard and see what kind of success I can come up with. And it should be fun. And so that's what I did. I, I went to Kansas. I scouted, uh, every single public piece or walking area in the state of Kansas and came up with a couple hot spots of places that I thought would be, you know, like say I'm like, Oh, I like these five spots that are within 50 miles. And so I applied for that unit. I drew that unit and then went out there. It was awesome. Okay. Did you talk to anybody like any game wardens or anybody that you know that hunts Kansas or anything like that? I didn't No, I didn't call any sort of biologists or game wardens or anything. I just kind of wanted to do it a hundred percent on my own. I wanted to just be able to, you know, pick a spot on a map that I thought would be overlooked and go in there and give it a shot. And, uh, it was, uh, it was totally different than I expected. By the way, the pressure out there was like nothing I've ever seen before. I've never seen pressure like that in New York. I've never seen pressure like that in Ohio. I mean, it was insane as far as hunter pressure goes, but I found a way to get out of that. I found a way to get away from people. And as soon as I did, I shot a buck. Yeah, absolutely. And that probably comes hand in hand right there. How much time are you spending avoiding people? So you found a place that didn't have very much pressure. So then you were successful. Um, what made you hunt that specific spot in Kansas? So I had a bunch of spots picked out. I, you know, this particular unit I had, let's say a top 20 spots. And then I had, so I had like my top 20 and then I had like my top five and then I had like my top three and then my favorite one on the maps. Okay. So I've never stepped foot in the state of Kansas. So I go out there and I go to my number two spot right away because the wind set up right for it. And there's actually, so I, I went to the Creek to cross it and I, it was deeper than I anticipated. So I went back to the truck to grab waiters and there was three guys at the truck that were from different States getting ready to go hunt that spot. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I was like, yeah, guys, like go do your thing. I'll get out of your hair. So I packed it up and went to the next spot. And, uh, basically every good location that I thought would be good that I went to, like, let's say my top five spots that I went to, I went to all top five. They all had hunters at them. Like I saw people in every single location And so I've decided, you know what, I'm going to take my top 15 spots and not even look at them. I'm going to look at the spots that I didn't, that were still on my list, but I didn't think would be as good because they didn't have the terrain that I was looking for before. And that's what ended up giving me success. You know, I found an area, I basically got away from all the ag fields. I got away from all the wooded Creek bottoms because you can hang a climber in there. You can hang a uh, ladder stand in there. And I went to an area that the only trees were like little dead pasture trees and then some pines. I loved your setup, the two sticks and you're like right there. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it looks higher than it was too. I was only about eight feet high, but I had that pine tree in front of me that was cutting off like half my body. So when I shot that deer, you can't see it on the, on the film, but my arrow just cleared that pine tree. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was at like seven yards. So he was, you know, he was coming in on a string and never saw me, which was great. Yeah. He didn't, didn't, I noticed one thing though, with your shots though, you do, you don't give him a chance to uh, stand still. That's for sure. <laughs> but, no. like, but like, I mean, you, what'd you say? It was like probably an eight yard shot. Yeah. So I, I prefer a broadside shot or quartering away shot when they're not moving. I prefer that, but the style of hunting that I do 
leads to more quartering two shots. So I changed my setup to kind of help me with that. And so I went to a 580 grain arrow. I went to a vector custom shop arrow. Mm -hmm. I went to iron wheels, solid broadheads. Uh, you know, I'm doing everything I can to make sure I can shoot through that scapula because that's the shot that's offered to me the most. And I I feel really confident making that shot. You know, I, I practice really far. I love, I love, uh, you know, shooting distance practicing, but my setups are, are all for like 20 yards and under and both my deer this year, I killed under 12 yards. So are you getting more of that, uh, FOC setup basically? Yeah. Yep. And basically I just want as, as much kinetic energy as I can muster for that sub 15 yard shot into the scapula that I know I'm going to be offered. That's just, you know, when you're, when you're bed hunting, generally a deer is going to be coming from an area and you know where he's going and you have to get in between that. So he's almost always walking towards you. You know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. And, and that so, seems that way with your setups as uh, from what I've seen on video. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always offered that shot. I mean, I would not always, but 90% of the time that's the shot I'm offered. So I just figured out a way to make my setup work. You know, I went away from rage tripens because I just don't trust that going through a scapula. I don't feel like that isn't necessarily an ethical shot. And, you know, I've had a couple guys reach out to me too. And they're like, Oh, that's unethical. Well, your, your setup dictates what you can get away with and your shooting. Like I'm confident that I can hit, you know, a 50 cent piece at 10 yards all day long. So I can hit that certain spot in the scapula. I know I need to go through to hit the lungs. Yep. Like a 10 yard shot's not bad. And even if he's walking, it's, it's, 10 yards, my entire sight, my entire sight housing at 10 yards is on the deer's shoulder. Yeah. So because of how close they are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I, you cannot mess that shot up to, to me. I would rather have that shot than a broadside 40 yard shot. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know, like the amount of movement that you're going to get on a deer jumping, the jumping the string is going to be a lot more than any sort of any 10 yard shot. So Teach their own. You can look at it a hundred different ways. You know, it's all about your setup, your confidence, your skill level, mm-hmm. and figuring out how to kill the deer. That's what matters. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do. I like that front of center uh, setup. I've, I'm actually transitioning to that this year. Uh, my other buddy, like I said, hunts in Indiana. He he already he's done the ranch ferry and all that stuff as far as you know the whole nine yards. And I I want to go to the fixed blade front of center, the more inertia and so forth like that. I want those closer shots because bow hunting in general, it's just, it's tough. It is. Yeah, it really is. And that's the cool thing. Uh, I, I guess I've never plugged them before, but maybe I have on one podcast, but the vector custom shop arrows, it's really cool because you go to their website and you put in like the poundage of your bow mm-hmm. and your draw length and the in a couple different things. And they just build the arrows for you and send them to your house. Yep. So I, I don't I don't have to do all the calculations. I don't have to do all that. They do it for me, which is really nice. I saw your you were talking about possibly doing some elk hunting every couple of years as well. Is that the same setup you're going to use on elk? Like, do you feel that confident that it's going to bust an elk as well? Or are you tweaking your setup for elk? For elk, I think I would leave it the same. For mule deer, I, I really have been getting this itch to go hunt high country mule deer. And I know the shots are going to be longer out there. That's going to be a little bit longer of a shot. So my thought process there is I might, I might end up getting another bow and have just two totally different setups. You know, I might drop even a hundred grains on my arrow and 
run a little bit of a different broadhead and then run a different bow so I can just have it completely tuned out for mule deer. No, I like that. I like that. So back to Kansas a little bit. We got off subject there, but I like the I like talking about the bow setups because everybody has their different opinions on all that. Um, so let's just say, figuratively speaking, say you didn't kill in that spot in Kansas. If you didn't kill, how much longer would you have given that spot? Like, what's going to give you the drive to move? Like, what's your? Do you have a plan B already in place? Something like that. So I had set that stand up for the following day because it was a cold front moving in, northwest wind. And it was going to drop, I want to say like 20 degrees almost. It was going to be a high mid twenties. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was setting that stand up really for that situation. And I just told myself like, I might as well sit here regardless because I'm, I'm not going to go back to camp and just hang out. Like my might as well hunt till dark. Yeah. And it just so happened that that buck walked by, <laughs> but, uh, I would have, I would have stayed there as long as I was confident in that spot, which would have been. I would say at an absolute minimum with all the pressure I was seeing, it would have been at least three days. And then that would have been dictated past that point based on if I was seeing deer or not, you know, if I'm seeing cruising bucks in that area and nobody else is in there, I'm just going to sit right down. If it would have, if I would have gotten to like a grind hunt there, I mean, I might've sat in that spot. If I was seeing bucks for 10 days, 12 days, 14 days, something as long as it took. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So how did like your hunting transition, um, from Ohio into Kansas, anything different, you know, obviously I know the terrain is going to be different, but is there anything, you know, skill wise that you were using that in Ohio that, you know, transitioned well to Kansas? I think the ability to, this is, this is a big one. So this is, this is something that I've started preaching a little bit more, the ability to make sure your setup is going to have the deer in range because like going to a rut hunt in Kansas skill wise, as opposed to early season, Ohio, like I don't feel like it's even close. I feel like early season, you have to really be dialed in on your game. You there's, there's so many factors that will either let you be successful or not. We're during a rut hunt in Kansas. I mean, you just got to go find a good funnel and sit it and you got to stay away from people. And that is a skill in itself, but to me, it's, it's a lot easier to go do that than it is what I'm doing here in Ohio, or it's a lot less time consuming, I guess. Um, but the, the big thing for me is, you know, I, I know a lot of people that go on these out of state hunts or in state and they see a ton of deer and they'll always tell me like, Oh, Jake, I saw five bucks tonight. I saw six, not six bucks tonight. Like, what'd you see? And I'm like, I haven't seen a deer in five days. And they kind of <laughs> chuckle at me. And then the next day I kill one. And they're like, how'd you just kill that giant? And it's like, because I'm hunting spots where I'm not going to see a deer unless I can kill that deer. The majority of the time, if I can see him, I can kill him. A lot of times I hear deer all around me, but I can't kill him because I'm after a very specific thing. I'm in an area where if, if he's where I think he's going to be at, I can kill him when he pops out. So going to Kansas, I kind of set up the same way. I was like, okay, they should be coming down through, you know, four or five different draws that meet right here. Well, I'm not going to sit up on the hillside or I'm not going to, you know, set up where I can observe the other ridges that I can't see from this spot. I'm going to go for this spot. I'm going to not be overly greedy with trying to get every trail I can. And I'm just going to put myself in a position to kill the trail that I can shoot. Kill the deer on the trail that he comes down. Like I can shoot that trail. And that's something that I've, that's, 
I've evolved a lot with over the last couple of years. You know, I spent a lot of my earlier hunting days trying to just get it all. I wanted all, I wanted all the trails mm-hmm. right where I was. Even if I'm sitting in the dead center of them, my winds like swirling, like I just wanted all the trails. <laughs> but now I've learned to pick the trail that you think is going to be the best opportunity and make damn sure that you can kill that spot. Like when a deer walks out and hits this spot, you can shoot and kill him. That's what's important. I don't want to go see 10 deer and not be able to shoot them. I want to be able to kill the buck that I see every single time. And I don't know. I feel like that's an evolved thing. And that's, that's something that maybe quite a few people even get wrong, but they also have success in seeing deer. And I'm sure that brings them happiness and, and everything else. But I think that you would kill a lot more deer if you settled for not seeing as many deer. No, I, I agree on that. That's, that's huge. Cause and, and, and everybody has their different ways and different things that they want. You, you know what I mean? Like you said, that might be a good day to them to see 20, 15, 10 deer compared to seeing the shooter, I guess I would say. You know, you got to take with what you want and your pros and cons out of it. Um, Did you learn anything new in Kansas that you can be applied to Hill Country, Ohio, in Ohio? Uh, I, I, <laughs> to be honest with you, I really don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, I just, you know, it's different, you know, maybe something you picked up on or anything like that. Um, I wish I wish I would have had a couple more days of hunting almost, but I'm never going to complain with tagging out day two. I do. I do have one question I've been dying to ask you. Um, so I, I don't know if your camo or, or whatnot was the same in Kansas as it was in Ohio. Um, it almost seems you don't, do you not wear a face covering or anything like that? You just wear a ball cap. Yeah, I don't wear any sort of mask or anything. I don't paint my face. I used to. <laughs> it might just be in my head because I swear, like, when they see my head silhouette, I swear they just, like, pick me out. Maybe that's just something in my head. But that was one thing I noticed about you that a lot of other hunters I haven't really noticed. Like, most of them are wearing some kind of face shield or, or something to kind of take away that silhouette. And, like, I just was watching your videos, and you're just out there ball cap nothing a little, <laughs> little bit of a beard going on a little bit of camouflage there but i mean they don't seem to recognize you at all they're just but maybe that has to go in with your scouting and how you're catching them on the transition they're walking down the trails and you, and you just blast them i mean that's <laughs> they don't have time to see you maybe i don't know but that was one no, thing that's... i kind of picked out about you that was like one thing that really set off that was different than other hunters yeah no you're you're completely right and i think there's a couple factors for that the the first one is concealment. You know, concealment means a lot to me as far as I'll, I don't want to be in a wide open tree. And if I'm in a wide open tree, I'll be on the backside of it hunting like a saddle. But if I'm, if I'm sitting down in my stand regular, like conventionally in my tree stand, I need to have limbs and branches and leaves and pine trees and anything else I can all around me. And a lot of times what I find is you know, I, I, I've got a couple of buddies, for instance, where they'll go up above the cover. They'll go up and skyline themselves 20 feet high above the cover. And they'll go set up with me. Like we'll go out on a hunt and I'll set everything up and we'll get in stands. They're like, we're six feet off the ground. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to kill the deer right there. <laughs> and the thing I like about that, even my girlfriend this year, we had a setup where we were, her tree stand was six inches off the ground. It was just, we were on the, we were on a hillside So we couldn't sit on the ground because we would have just slid down the hill. So the only reason we even put the tree stand up was so she could just sit in it on flat ground. 
was the only purpose. And these deer would have came around a bunch of bushes off of a bedding, a big greenbrier bedding ridge. And she would have had an eight yard shot broadside. Like there was, they wouldn't see her until there was an arrow going through their lungs. That's something, so that, yeah, I was gonna say, that's something I'm, I'm, that's probably one of the biggest points I've taken away from this podcast and probably something that I need to change Cause I'm definitely a skyline hunter. I mean, I go probably up way too far and, uh, that's that's interesting you said that. That's that'll be something I'll probably have to start working on to change. Yeah, and it's it, it is a it's a different feeling at first, but when you start being successful doing it, it, it changes a lot of things. And like you said earlier, you know, when I'm set up, I'll be low, I don't have face paint on or anything, but when the buck that I'm after comes out, nine times out of ten, I'm drawn back before he can even see anything about me and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting. And whenever he finally presents a shot, which means he just came out of the cover, you know, dad's buck. If you guys watched that video was a perfect example. Amazing. The buck's video. walking. I appreciate it. You know how he's walking down the ridge pretty quick and he's hitting that scrape. Yep. Well, my camera's out in front of me. I'm, I'm completely concealed by that tree that was off to the left. As soon as he got past that tree, I mean, my arrow missed those tree branches by probably two inches because as, because as soon as that deer presented me a shot, I was pulling the trigger. I wasn't going to wait and let him look at me. No, absolutely. And that's, and like Matt said, like my dad's the same way. He wants to be 20, 25 feet in the air. And I'm like a two stick, three stick guy where I'm like, I don't want to get above the umbrella. And especially you being early season, the leaves are still on the tree. So you can see that distinct umbrella pretty easily. Yes, ex exactly. I've never hunted that low, but I, that, it almost seems like it would be more fun. And I'll give you a little plug here. Anyone that hasn't watched that video, I think it's called Dad's Buck. Is that correct on YouTube? Yes, sir. Dad's buck. Check out that video. Yeah. I, it'll probably make you cry. It didn't make me cry because I'm really tough, but <laughs> yes. I was close. <laughs> I was close. I mean, it was it was an emotional video, and uh, you did a really good job on that. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I got I some I got some scenarios to throw at you. Um, so let's just say you're doing some summer scouting and you bump a buck, and you know, I know it's summer, and I know you hit on some of that stuff. Like, where do you go from there? where's like do you have like a detailed like maybe an idea like to make sure that he's returning back in there or anything along those lines so i really don't what if i'm scouting an area let's say that it's a southwest wind that day because when i'm scouting i'm still paying attention to the wind because every and that's another tip because if if you go out and you're scouting and you're bumping deer around mm -hmm. and you're not asking yourself why they were bedded there then why are you even out there scouting that is such a major part. Of, you, you have a real-time piece of the puzzle. I bumped this deer off this ridge in this bed on this wind day. That is everything that you need to know real-time. So if you don't have that information when you're going scouting, you're you're missing a whole piece. You know what I mean? Like you're out there to to achieve what you just had, but you need to know what's going on. You need to know what the wind is. You need to be checking the wind as you're scouting. You know, I'm checking the wind the whole time. So to back, get back to your question, uh, three years ago in Ohio was a perfect example. I moved down here in June and mm -hmm. I scouted all summer and I actually scouted up until like four or five days before season. Uh, two weeks before season, I was scouting a brand new area that I picked out on a map, really liked it. And I went out for one of those big 10 mile days, 
going up and down a bunch of ridges. And I get to this one spot where the deer sign finally had picked up. I was like, oh, there's a big set of tracks. Mm -hmm. And I look up the hill and I see this giant rub. And you've probably heard this story before, but I, I see this giant rub up on the hill. And so I walk up to that rub and there's a scrape. And I'm like, ooh, there's a scrape. Mm-hmm. So I start walking to the scrape and I bump an absolute giant buck out of his bed. And he, he runs up over the ridge, right? I mean, he he ran off pretty good. Yeah. But I knew he was huge. I mean, I'm a New York boy at this point moving down here <laughs> and I haven't killed anything even remotely close to what I had just witnessed. And so right away, I already know the wind for the day, right? I already know that. So I'm like, okay, so during season, if, you know, I'm only two weeks out, I was like, man, the first chance that I get to hunt this spot on that wind, I'll be here. It was a Southwest wind. So I go in there on a Southwest wind, which just happened to be day two. Mm-hmm. And I'm ready to go. You know, I'm working my way in. There's big, uh, big tracks. There's some big rubs, this big scrape. I'm working my way up through and I can hear acorns falling. Sure enough, it's right where that bed was. You know, the acorns are probably falling 50 yards, 60 yards from that bed. So I circle around the bottom of that ridge a little bit and I work my way up to where my wind and my thermals won't hit where I had bumped that buck. Mm -hmm. And I set up and 45 minutes later, I arrowed 186 inch deer. That's great. So I like that then that you, you, you basically, I didn't even think of it that way. So basically like you did all the research for you right there by bumping the buck. You're like, okay, stop. Why did I bump him? I got a, like you said, you got a Southeast wind, Southwest wind, you know, all the, why is he there at that point? I guess I would say that's, I've never even thought of it that way. I like that. You know, and that's the number one question that it it might sound cliche or silly or anything like that, but I'm telling you anytime that I'm scouting, I'm asking myself why. And I talk to myself when I'm out there almost, I, I guarantee you, I ask myself today at least 50 times. Why is that there? You know, I found that a giant rub I posted on my Instagram story. I was like, why, why, why is it right there? Well, sure as shit. It's on a clear cut transition. And I jumped down over this. It was just a little sub point of a ridge. I hadn't even, I didn't even pick it out on my map. I jumped down there, two big buck beds. So he's cross, he's laying right, right there. And he's jumping up, hitting that rub, hitting a scrape right there and going to an oak flat. I mean, if I would, if I would have just walked by and been like, oh, nice rub took a picture of it and moved on. No, stop, (laughs) stop. Why? You know, you got to think, why is that there? Why, why is there a deer trail here? Why is this rub where it's at? Why did I just bump that buck? And that's the biggest one hands down is why did I bump that buck? Yeah. You know, it all matters. But I mean, if, if you didn't do any scouting and you went out the last, let's say two weeks of summer before season, and you just walked around bumping bucks and glassing them as they ran off, you could kill a good buck every year, early season doing that. Because if say you found, say you bumped five deer doing that and you had five bucks. Okay. On this wind, they were bedded here and you went back on that wind and hit each one of those spots. You're going to kill one of those deer. I like that. That's yeah. Well, then this maybe kind of transitions into my other question or scenario. So say you find an area in January, February. So we're not in summertime yet. Um, how would you determine determine if that same deer is going to be using that area in September or early October? So that's a good question. That's that's something that I fine tuned over the years, and you know I'm going to explain what I've come up with. But it's really going to take the the listeners and you and anybody else. It's going to take 
doing this to, to really figure out this part of it because it's, it's a feel thing. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have a couple areas that I always, I always tell everybody there's two different types of, uh, locations that I have. There's locations that are migration locations where the deer move out in, let's say the winter time, or even in the summertime to ag fields. And then they migrate back to the hardwoods before season. On the flip side, there's locations where the deer are there all year round. That area, that terrain, the they have enough food for the year, whether it be green briar, browse, clear cut browse, uh, white oaks, you know, private ag nearby. So you have those two different types of situations. So, like, let's say in big woods, you know, I get into a hub system that has a hub system that has a bunch of uh, clear cuts in it and it's got plenty of cover. It doesn't get a lot of hunter pressure that area. You know, it's got good white Oak flats. It's got a private ag field nearby. The area is going to have deer there all the time. They're always going to use those same beds. They're always going to be in that area, hitting their community scrapes. You can run cameras there year round. You can find their sheds there. You know, like you can put a piece of the puzzle together at any point in the year for that spot. My, my second locations, which are like my secondary spots that I don't have quite the same intel for, mm -hmm. are areas where let's say that there's a giant oak ridge that sets up for the wind that I need. It's got a clear cut on top, but it's let's say it's 15 years old and it's just kind of like high stem saplings now. And down below, about a mile and a half down the ridge, there's a alfalfa field. Well, you know, if in the summertime, those deer aren't going to be up on that ridge because they don't have very much food. They're going to migrate down to that alfalfa field because it's in close enough proximity to that spot that they can revert back there when they need to for early season. Yeah. So I attack those spots totally different too. You know, I'll glass those fields, that alfalfa field. Like this is a real world example. This year I was glassing that alfalfa field and I had probably right around 170 inch buck with a bunch of one forties coming out every single night. Oh, well, sure enough, all those deer, when the acorns drop, moved back up on the ridges like they were supposed to. And I already had cameras waiting for them. And one of the things I, I tell people is if you put cameras out in hill country, don't go check them all the time and don't pull them too soon. Like if you can leave them there all year. And reason being, I'll, uh, you know, like, my spots that are always good, like I was telling you earlier, the ones with the clear cuts and stuff like that, if I can run a camera there and I could, yeah, I could go pull it earlier and it's going to have those bucks on it. But in the, in the other spot where the alfalfa field is pretty far away, those deer aren't even up there until the acorns drop. So I put my cameras up early waiting for the shift to happen. Say I go up in August before the acorns drop and I check those cameras, you know, they've been out for a couple months at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, man, I don't even have a deer on those cameras. I don't have anything on those five cameras. Well, you know what? There's nothing here. I'm going to pull them down and move on. Well, you pull them down and move on. Two weeks later, all the bucks shift back there because the acorns dropped. And now you just missed all the intel that you needed. And you missed an opportunity at an early season buck over an oak flat. So what I do is I put my cameras out late June, early July. And I do not check a single camera until at least September for that reason. I like that. Yeah, because honestly, like you said, you can see a lot of deer in fields in the summertime. But like you said, when those acorns, it's like candy to them. And that's another thing that I've noticed, and not necessarily the early season 
we've noticed some cameras get more bucks and deer when the pressure comes more into it. So like it was like we had a camera, didn't have anything early season, and then you notice when hunting season came in and more pressure, these deer got pushed back, and we had a buck all through there all the time, and it's just like the pressure changed it up on them and so so forth like that. Yes, exactly, and that's another thing that you can anticipate. You know, if you're in an area with a lot of ag fields, and then you have some some like ridges behind it there's a good chance that those ag fields are going to get hunted pretty decently early season and mm-hmm. that those bucks are going to like revert back to, you know, it, it might even be like a greenbrier patch in the back corner of a property, or it could be up on those Oak ridges. It could be anywhere, but yeah, I've seen that too. So <clears throat> on the, since we're on the ag field topic, our, our first episode ever, we had a guy come on, his name's Nick Cooper and he's actually a lot of his stuff highly relates to exactly what you're saying. And it's kind of surprising because where he hunts is Kansas and Southeast Ohio. <laughs> so he, he's highly interested in, uh, in hearing your episode. And I, he did have one question that he wanted me to ask you. So Nick kind of swears that late season, like almost December time, more into December when everyone's kind of finished up hunting, that's when the big, big bucks come out. Um, so as you know, though, a lot of the ag fields on public and things like that have been harvested and you can't feed on, on public. Well, then you have all the private landowners give it, putting down corn and things like that. So a lot of those deers move off. So kind of what he was wondering, what's your favorite time of year to hunt that Ohio region? Are you more of an early season one or do you kind of agree with him? Like you can really get on some big, the big bucks, um, during late season when they start getting, getting up looking for food, maybe that second rut. So the rut doesn't mean a whole lot to me here. Um, even the, even the second rut. So the second rut in Ohio is going to be a little different than Kansas, I believe. So Ohio that comes in like around the 11th of December seems about the time frame that I see all the activity ramp up again. And yeah, it's only a few days right long where he's talking about probably right yeah. around then. So I don't think that it depends on weather, obviously, but if I had my, my two favorite, well, I guess I'll do my three favorite weeks. So my three favorite weeks of season, hands down would be the first week of season, the last week of October, and then pick any week that's cold in January. Oh, January. And, January. and that's and that's right around the time that late December, he, he swears those big bucks. Maybe they didn't get, um, much energy out chasing does during the first rut or two. He's, he swears that's when the big bucks get on their feet. Yeah. And so what I see is they, they move a lot closer to the food source and some, and some situations, or they're just more active, like actively feeding, I guess they're willing to travel further in daylight to get to their food source. So it's, it's actually like if, if I had one week that I had to kill a big one, I would still be early season to be honest with you, but <laughs> that, that, that January is definitely close. And my trail cameras tell me the same thing before the antlers fall off, you know, mid January, late January, I would say that that's probably the most amount of giant bucks that I get on camera all year. Really? And they're yes. And they're all daylight active. So last year I shot my buck during the rut in Ohio and come January, I go start to pull cameras out 
And I mean, they're loaded with bucks way bigger than the buck I shot. And oh my gosh. You might it be was, changing uh, my January schedule up a little bit because Nate Nate still has a tag to fill in Ohio, and I, yeah. I might have to tail with him here early January because you're really talking it up, and Nick does too. Both of you guys know what you're talking about. So, so, so this is the so Ohio has an early muzzleloader season, or not early muzzleloader. It has an early January muzzleloader season. Okay. So I think it's I believe it's like the ninth through the eleventh or the eighth through the tenth. Don't quote me on that, but it's around that time frame. But that's a that's a lethal time to be in the woods. And then what I would focus on if you're coming up in January for, uh, you know, late Ohio bow hunt, you got to find acorns. You have to find oak flats. And this year was probably the worst year for acorns I've ever seen in the deer woods. Now, are There's you looking not, for more red oaks? Um, I'm assuming reds, black senses. pins, whites, okay. spurs. It doesn't matter they're they're almost non-existent in any of the areas that i've scouted or that i have but i found a couple pockets and i found a pocket today it's a south facing oak flat that has red oaks on it right now falling i mean they were hitting me in the head walking through that oak flat <laughs> that's great so those are the spots that you want to find and the best thing you can do is pick out a bunch of like south facing ridges and just fly through them just put boots on the ground i mean i don't care if it's 10 miles a day find a hot oak flat and you're gonna have bucks there i love it i love it i wanted to uh well if you're talking about this now remember i was texting you the other day when i was uh in ohio and that's the thing i found some nice sign and i had that one buck come in and he made a scrape down below me but i was off of a logging road so he never came up to me he stayed about 70 to 80 yards away from me um so i'll give you that scenario so i i this is not i did not do any scouting i kind of did you know more of a feed the sign kind of work my way in kind of went off some different uh pine thickets and different uh points so i worked my way in found some hot sign it was some of those pictures that i was sending you um, so then I got set up and I had that buck came in and he set up a, he did a scrape on me. You know, if you have something like that, that happened, what is your next step? Like, you know, he never came out. It got dark. I got out of there. You know, are you setting up any type of cameras maybe over that scrape? You know, I kind of have an idea of maybe where he's bedding at right now. You know, obviously I don't know until I actually walk into his bed. Um, you know, like I'll just play out that scenario. What's your next step? what's my next step to hunt that deer Yeah, like the next day or later in season? Later in season. So I'm not going to be able to make it down there probably in the next, I'm going to try to shoot down there this week, maybe set up a cam, but I'm not going to be able to hunt probably until probably after Christmas. I guess I'm looking at right now. So what I would do in that area, were you in, you were in hill country yet? So yes. yeah. what I would do is I would look at my maps and I would try to play off the weather too, because it's going to be very weather dependent right now, but I would look at my maps, see if I had any clear cuts in the area that were, you know, within let's, let's say like a mile or a half mile. Okay. Even close, the closer, the better. Yeah. I would look at all the South facing ridges because that's just the time of year. We're starting to get to the point where they're feeding on more South facing ridges. And if we get any snow, it just, it magnifies that. <laughs> so I would, I would look at those. I would, really try to just figure out, Hey, you know, Ed, when you come back down, I wouldn't depend on any sort of rut activity. I wouldn't depend on any sort of like the pre or post rut scraping or anything like that. I would, I would get back to your bed to food tactics. Okay. 
So if you have a good, you know, you know what the wind was the day you saw him. Yep. You have a general idea of where he's bedded. I would start working my way towards that bedding. And I might even, if I'm not, if I don't have it completely dialed, maybe you throw an observation set at it from a, from a ridge. That's like, you know, if you can hunt the ridge next to that one and, but you can still glass and observe that hillside that night because it's wide open right now, maybe that's the play. Maybe you throw an observation set at it to verify that he's doing what you think he's going to be doing. And then you go for it or you scout your way in and you find, you know, good tracks and you find where they're either nibbling on Greenbrier or they have an Oak flat somewhere and they're eating pretty good. And you just try to target it that night. Okay. No, that, that, that makes sense. It was a Southwest wind is what it was, is what I had. Yeah, which is typical. So that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and you're going to have that when you come down here, unless we have a massive cold front roll through. Okay. Okay. And that's the thing. It's I broke off on a the north. I was walking down the road, start seeing the sign, and there was he was just basically hitting pines on the edge. Is all he was doing. He was just making uh, rubs, and you know they're about as big as my thigh. And basically, what I did was I broke off to the left because I feel like he was watching down that he was watching that road. I guess I would say. So I broke off, you know, went down so we couldn't see me, and then I cut up the hill and, and set up, and he came in to my grunt. I grunted at him probably about 4.30, and he showed up about 4.40. So, and then, you know, I didn't figure he was going to come all the way up because it was pretty open. So he didn't have a lot of cover. So, you know, he kind of showed off a little bit and then dipped out is basically what he did. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, but no, man, um... Do you have anything for us? I mean, I dude, this has been great. Like I've I've been looking forward to this, and I'm so glad you got back to me. You know, me and Matt are you know couldn't be more happier with you coming on and everything like that. Yeah, I really appreciate you, brother. Yeah, it's been a good time. Uh, you know, anytime you guys want to want to have a podcast, I like talking deer hunting, so it's it's something I enjoy doing. And uh, if your listeners have any more questions, or you guys come up with any questions or anything, feel free to reach out to me. Perfect, man. Perfect. Yeah, you want to go ahead and tell them uh, your Instagram and your YouTube or anything like that? Yep, so you guys can find me at Legends of the Hunt on YouTube. I've got four or five hunts on there now. They're pretty good. Um, you know, I try to mix some tactics into them stuff, so they're not professional quality by any means, but they're real, which is, I think, important. Um, and then you guys can find me on Instagram at Jake Bush Solo as well. Perfect, perfect. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. Uh, Take care. Uh, We'll be in touch. Yeah, sounds good. Take care, guys. Thanks again. Thanks, Jake. Bye.